Hi everyone, it's Lauren Hawker Zapper. Welcome back to Redefining AI, the tech podcast. I'm an educator and I'm taking you on an educational exploration into the fascinating minds of those that embody and forefront all you need to know about artificial intelligence, machine learning, insight engines, and the insights era. This episode is called Deep Learning in Fixed Income Markets. And to discuss this, I have been joined by Kai Yiseke and a special host, our Squirrel CTO, Sarah Jane. Our guest today, Kai, is the founder, chairman, and chief scientist at Infima. He is also professor of management science and engineering at Stanford University, the director of the Advanced Financial Technologies Laboratory, and the director of the Mathematical and Computational Finance Programme. Kai serves on the Governing Board and Scientific Advisory Board of the Consortium for Data Analytics in Risk. Kai is also a financial technologist interested in solving the challenging modeling, statistical and computational problems arising in fixed income and credit markets. Together with his students at Stanford, Kai has pioneered the core elements of the deep learning and computational technologies underpinning Infima's solutions. Kai's research has won several awards, including the GP Morgan AI Faculty Research Award in 2019 and the Fama DFA Prize in 2011, and has been funded by the National Science Foundation, GP Morgan, State Street, Morgan Stanley, Swiss Re, American Express, Moody's, and several other organizations. Now, I can assure you that this will be an exciting and interesting conversation. So let's dive into the conversation and let's welcome Kai. Welcome, Kai. Thank you so much, Lauren, for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. It is. It's our pleasure, isn't it, Sarab? Yes, it is. So, Kai, you join our show and I've just introduced you with a, a, a noble resume. And from the offset, it looks like your professional efforts that they've been laced around four particular key areas. These would be science, finance, technology, and engineering. Um, Is this correct? And should we have introduced those in a particular order? What relationship do you have to these fields today, Kai? So um, appreciate the question, right? So it's uh, they shouldn't come in in a particular order. They're, They're all... For me, they're all like like family, right? And and I enjoy moving between um, uh, th- these different areas um, and using my scientific background to really uh, dive deeply into the challenging problems that exist at this um, you know exciting intersection of, of finance and technology, and and coming up with solutions that really have an impact on the industry. And you say like this exciting intersection of finance and technology. How would you describe this intersection? That, that's a very good point, right? So if you look at many modern financial institutions, um, then many of them are actually technology companies under the hood, right? If you if you look at the employees that they have, they have you know, scores of engineers and software engineers, right? And data scientists and machine learning people and so on. So at heart, they are technology companies, and I'm interested in 
in really pushing the boundary on the technology front within the, the financial context. And this is a, a, a challenging uh, a context, right? Because institutions are heavily regulated. They need to be conservative in, in how they do business. They look over people's uh, wealth and financial well-being. So they have a certain amount of uh, societal responsibility. And, and all of that can't be taken lightly, right? And this just translates into challenging technological problems that are not easy to solve. And this is uh, what I find attractive from an intellectual perspective. Very much so. And I think that what you've mentioned there, if we look at the financial context and, and the power that's mixed with the regulation, I think it's a good point to actually start our own exploration and immerse ourselves into the setting of the financial industry. So you've mentioned, you said that it's an industry that is heavily regulated. How would you say that this regulation is impacting the use of AI in the sector? And where does it maybe compare with other sectors? So um, the, the finance, for various reasons, the financial industry is a little bit behind uh, when it comes to the use of AI compared to other industries, let, let, let's say just the tech industry at, at large. And you know, one reason certainly is regulation, right? Regulators uh, tend to be very conservative. They tend not to be early adopters of, of new technologies. They often take this, this perspective that they want to see things pan out uh, over some time period before they actually make a commitment to a new technology, right? And, and this, this perspective, you know, has an influence on the adoption rate in, in the financial industry, right? And this, this does make sense, right? If we, we, we talked about the societal importance uh, or the societal relevance of financial institutions, right? Um, they are stewards of, of people's uh, uh, wealth. And it's good that there's regulation overseeing uh, all of these uh, all of these functions take a concrete example credit uh, approval credit underwriting right so one interesting use case for ai would be to use data driven algorithms ai algorithms to support credit decision making right is a, a person worth getting a, a loan of a certain size with uh, with certain terms and a machine can help sift through all the data that's available on the person to identify any weak spots and flag irresponsible financial behavior, for example. So, you know, the machine can be used to make credit decisions where it's not really economical to have a human underwriter or just not, not feasible for a person to look at all of the data, right? So the, the potential here is to make credit available to people who would not otherwise get easy access to credit. So this is a good thing, right? We want to support this. On the other hand, with algorithmic decision-making come, come a whole lot of problems. We have to be, make sure that there's no discrimination, mm -hmm. right? We're not disadvantaging certain populations. Uh, we have to be careful not to pick up on any protected characteristics like gender, like age, et cetera, right? And so there are certain challenges um, that we face uh, when using AI, and regulators are naturally concerned about these types of uh, issues, right? And so they they hit a little bit the, the brakes here and and say, well, we, you know, we need more time to understand how this really works. We need to 
we need the time to to test it out and make sure it's actually not going the wrong way here and we are not disadvantaging certain protected you know classes of the of the population so this is just concretely one one use case for ai that's being explored where regulators have a have a strong interest in sort of like making sure that this doesn't go haywire and um you know, we are not getting any of these adverse effects from the use of AI that I mentioned. Of course, yeah. And I think that obviously we can look at it from more of a sociological perspective, as you mentioned, that we're ushering this this movement and more support for the social equality and ensuring that maybe underrepresented demographics are given a fair chance. Um, from a technological perspective, is there something that you want to explore there in terms of what the technology is allowing? Yeah, so one thing that uh, is actually very interesting for me to understand in your experience is that uh, machine learning or deep learning or AI has always been a bit of a black box technology in the sense that there has not been a very easy way to say that this decision was made based on these factors uh, in these must these this much proportions now going into a regulated industry where regulators would like to understand that there is no discrimination happening or the as you said the system is not going haywire how do you see that problem being addressed in the financial industry today so that uh, yeah we we can make good progress there you hit the nail exactly on the on the head here, right? This is this is one of the core challenges. Um, it's this AI is being perceived as a black box uh, versus more traditional models that tend to be more transparent, right? At least the uh, you know on the surface, a lot of work has happened over the past uh, five plus years um, in the computer science and statistics fields to develop tools and methods that allow you to look under the hood, open up the black box and effectively make it a, a white box as much as possible to um, to confront this criticism that, that you brought up. And so I would say we've made a huge progress over the years. This is a very active research area. I myself have worked on it in, in several projects with my students. And uh, it's an issue that, that people actually see or now have solutions for. So there's this criticism, hey, this is a black box, we don't understand what's going on. Um, that's still in people's minds, but I, I'd say objectively, that's actually no longer the case. So you're now in a position within this credit underwriting context for concreteness, right, to pinpoint to the characteristics um, of a person and say, well, uh, re rejected your application for a loan because you know your credit score was too low or your debt to income uh, was too bad or you you are too highly leveraged but if you do steps x y and z well then we see a path forward to improving your condition to a point that we can actually approve your loan at some point down the road so there's also an opportunity actually here to tell people how they can behave uh, in, in ways that improves their creditworthiness and how they can get to a point where they are more financially, you know, I don't want to say responsible, but in, in a financial state that makes them, you know, more appropriate for certain financial products. Mm -hmm. So maybe if we then, Kai, so you dedicated a number of years to founding and directing Stanford's Advanced Financial Technologies Laboratories or laboratory. 
um, which promotes research, education and thought leadership, but as we mentioned at the start, the intersection of finance and technology. And it had a focus on machine learning and computational algorithms. What exactly did you focus on and want to pursue then in more detail? What, what came out of, of that research? So this, this problem of credit underwriting is actually one uh, a problem that, that we were very interested in. And it, and it leads to a number of, um, of associated problems um, that are more focused on the, on the financial market. So if you imagine sort of the life cycle of a, of a credit, of a loan, right? It could be a home mortgage, it could be a consumer loan, or it could be, it could actually be a loan issued to a company, right? Then many of those loans, after they uh, get originated, um, get pooled and bundled up into securities that are then purchased by investors, right? It's a, it's a massive market. It's tens of trillions of dollars. It's not just a U.S. phenomenon, right? So there's participants in these markets from all over the globe, right? And understanding the behavior of, of, of these securities is, is important from an investment perspective, right? How should you allocate your capital um, in these markets, right? There's, there's hundreds of, literally hundreds of thousands of different securities available for potential investment. So how should you allocate your, your capital on the investment front? And the flip side is once you have an investment portfolio, what is the risk that you are exposed to, right? Markets move uh, on a daily basis, sometimes very fast. Question is, how does the market environment, the macroeconomic environment, influence the risk that you carry. And so it's in these two areas where AI tools can be employed and they address some of the shortcomings of earlier approaches, non-AI-based approaches that, that people have been grappling with over the years. And so analyzing these types of situations and problems and, and, and developing systems that represent solutions to these problems, that's really been the focus of the work that we've been doing in the in the lab. Mm -hmm. I mean, it must be quite difficult as well because it's all non-linear in the sense that the borrower behaviour is quite difficult to detect. Um, what particular shortcomings does it address? So, um, conventional approaches, so pre-AI approaches. Let me let me call it like this, right? So, um, looked at a limited amount of data to begin with, right? So just small amounts of, of sample data, small meaning just collected over shorter time periods, not a very wide cross-section of people. So um, a small data set to begin with, and then traditionally that was combined with, with models that uh, put fairly strong assumptions on, on bar behavior a priori. For example, you mentioned nonlinearity. So these models would typically assume that, that people behave in a more or less linear fashion, you know, when it comes to the various variables that, that, that influence behavior. And with these uh, highly nonlinear, nonparametric um, AI type models, one can eliminate any of these assumptions, right? And let just the data speak and reveal what's actually going on, how people behave as macroeconomic conditions change. And one has the ability to ingest uh, a lot more data, like, like orders of magnitude more data that's actually available, but that wasn't being used in, in the, in the pre-AI era. Uh, data was just sitting, sitting there and it, it, it was ignored essentially. 
So with these new technologies, we have the ability to really ingest all the data and try to understand what's really uh, driving behavior in all the glory detail without making strong a priori assumptions about how that behavior should actually look like, right? So we effectively let the data speak and let the data tell us how people behave as macroeconomic conditions change and as individual uh, uh, circumstances change over time. And that gives us much better predictions, much more accurate predictions about what a person is going to do uh, over some future time period, right? And that Having that, that that's like the that's like the bazooka, so to speak, right? And then you can attack additional problems that depend on in a critical way on the ability to make those uh, uh, predictions in in accurate ways. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like the the high level story of of how this fits into uh, this program. Fascinating. Yeah. And from a curiosity point of view, so I'm just wondering that. Uh, uh, in your uh, research and now at your at your company Infima, uh, you probably have consumed uh, tons of data to come with those assumptions or to to not make those assumptions a priori. And now, what I'm wondering is that uh, do you have any interesting observations on borrower behavior that can be codified into simple English sentences like this is how people react when that happens, um, as an example. Yeah, so, so what we can say is, um, I mean, there's many interesting uh, relationships there, but like, um, let's, let's just um, uh, pick, pick one out that's, that's perhaps interesting to the audience. And that is, um, how does uh, people's behavior change as, uh, for example, hope prices appreciate or depreciate, right? If you take the example of, um, of the home mortgage market, right? So there's you know, hundreds of millions of people have taken out mortgages to um, finance the purchase of a home. It's a very big decision for them, right? Because a lot of their wealth is then tied up in the home, right? It's the single most important decision, financial decision that many households make. So a lot is at stake for them. And so obviously their wealth then is driven to a large extent by what happens in the housing market, right? If housing markets appreciate, well, that's good for people. They accumulate home equity, and they they gain more wealth. If, on the other hand, home prices depreciate, then they can suddenly be underwater and owe more on the home mortgage than the house is worth, which is exactly what happened during the financial crisis in 2007, 8, 9. Um, and then people fall behind their mortgage payments and eventually default, get moved into foreclosure, and we have this global mess um, that we that we saw during the financial crisis, right? And so understanding how people behave in dependence of what home prices do is is one element here. So let me let me dig into this. So we can clearly observe that it really depends on the individual circumstances of a person on how severe a drop in home prices is. So someone who is it's actually quite intuitive, but we get that um, uh, really quantitatively uh, uh, from the data is there are people who are uh, more financially savvy, have higher credit scores, um, uh, for example, and there's other measures for for savviness, um, the less susceptible they tend to be to a home price uh, depreciation, for example. And we can measure this relationship and we can say, so for example, for every 
10-point increase in credit score, we get a, um, you know, a decrease, you know, an X percent decrease in sensitivity to home price depreciation, right? So these are the types of things that you can glean from these, from these nonlinear models. And this is something that typically would be totally ignored uh, with a pre-AI approach, right? There's a, there's a much more simplistic uh, take on these relationships. And th that turned out to be just too crude um, to handle the, the, the complexity that, um, that we see in those markets, right? And this was certainly one of the factors at play that, that caused the, the financial crisis. And with these technologies, we have uh, potentially a, a, a tool in the toolbox to give you a deeper understanding of the risk that's in the system and hopefully you know, avoid a crisis of the, of the scale that we saw 15, 15 or so years ago, right? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I was actually going to ask, like if we were to take example of the, the subprime crisis of the late 2010s, if this technology had been around then, it would have helped. I mean, that's what we're yeah. underlining here. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that would be my expectation, right? So if you, just at the high level, right, it, it, it's plausible to, to say that if people on the investment side, on the risk side, have a deeper and better understanding of the risk that they are exposed to, the risk that they are taking, then they should be making better decisions based on that, right? They should, they should have... A you know there, there should be there should be in a position then to reduce mitigate that risk put on positions um, that can serve as hedges or just be more conservative right if you have blind spots when it comes to risk right you just don't see what you are exposed to well then it's it's unsurprising to see institutions uh, failing because they they just weren't aware of the risks that that they were exposed to. And we saw this over and over again during the financial crisis, right? Mm -hmm. There were blind spots really on people's uh, risk uh, screen. And if we can fill those out, right, and give people better tools to really avoid these, these uh, uh, blind spots, then we'd think they can make better decisions. And so with the availability of those tools, we might have a way to uh, reduce the likelihood of these systemic uh, financial events uh, of the type that we've seen uh, during the financial crisis. Which would certainly be an act of empowerment, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so one more thing that uh, piqued my interest a bit is what you mentioned about uh, the ability to leverage the large amounts of data that is uh, that was actually already available before, but was just not leveraged. And what I'm interested in knowing is that uh, actually what kind of data sets uh, you are you are looking at and how do you even codify a macro event uh, into something that uh, a machine learning system can understand uh, in some form or shape. And for example, how would you avoid uh, biases and discriminations in that data and uh, yeah, it's too many things, but it's just like yeah, I'm just yeah. trying to wrap my head around the fact that what kind of data sets we, we look at here for this. Yeah, yeah, no, a, a fascinating question, right? And, and, and topic of data, of course, is the is the is the is the you know lifeblood um, yeah. of these of these learning algorithms, right? So it all starts with the data, and you have to spend a lot of uh, time curating and cleaning and transforming the data in various ways, right? So what we do at Infima is we have data on individual borrower behavior, mortgage borrower behavior, 
uh, going back more than two decades. And it's the data is covering tens of millions, 60 million actually, roughly, individual borrowers that have taken out mortgages across the entire United States uh, at various different points in time. And we can actually track the individual borrower behavior on a monthly basis. So every month, once a loan, once a mortgage has been originated somewhere in the US, it enters the database and we see what the borrower does on a month by month basis. So they're starting out being current, right? And then, you know, transition to current, to current, and then maybe they fall behind 30 days and maybe they come back to current, right? Maybe there's other events that happen, right? They go into a prolonged severe delinquency, fall behind multiple months then get maybe into a foreclosure process. And that's typically then the end of the record, right? Then there's these other outcomes that someone refinances their mortgage, right? Takes advantage of cheaper rates. We see that if someone goes into forbearance, which was a phenomenon during the during the pandemic, right? That many people could no longer make their mortgage payments. So they got uh, onto a forbearance plan. Uh, so we track that, or if the loans get modified, terms get changed, we track that and so on. So there's, there's this individual borrower-level data for many, many, many different types of borrowers, and then we observe that across time, right? So it's really like time-series data, right? It's a continuous record of a large number of people. And we also track then, of course, how the macroeconomy evolves with borrower behavior, right? So if you go 20 plus years back uh, and track, you know, interest rates, home prices, unemployment, you know, the financial markets, and so on and so forth, right? There's actually a longish list of variables that we track on an ongoing basis. Now, this then intuitively gives us an understanding to see how borrower behavior changes in response to changing macroeconomic conditions. And since we have this wide cross-section of, of people in our data set, right? We see how like the very wealthy person behaves versus a less affluent person behaves, you know, the very creditworthy person versus the less creditworthy person, right? So we have this wide cross-section sort of over long time periods. And with these deep learning systems, we are effectively able to uncover the patterns in, in this data. And uh, that comes back to these nonlinearities, Lauren, that you mentioned, right? That we do see these various types of relationships that previous approaches simply missed because they didn't have all of that data and they didn't have the capability to look so much under the hood as, as we can. Yeah, because it always comes to our mind, the data that you don't have is almost as representative as the data that you do have. And when you were explaining that, it was also quite sort of prominent in my own mind that is there this cross-section demographic represented that it's not only maybe the lower end of the scale but also the the affluent end of the scale like what would be the the representation in terms of trying to get everything covered so that there's a mitigation of as many biases as possible as well yeah and there's there's also the geographic spread is very wide Mm -hmm. right so in, in the U.S., right, there's different states with different uh, regulatory regimes, different legal regimes uh, when it comes to foreclosure. When can that actually happen? And so on, right. So by by having that many sample, and like at the end of the day, we're getting into the billion sample range, right? So this is certainly a good amount of data to work with when it comes to deep learning, and it's it's not as big as the Facebook graph or the Twitter file hose. 
right? But like for financial purposes, it is a pretty big data set. And that was actually one of the one of the the uh, the core points for me to try and see whether these large scale machine learning systems uh, can actually do anything meaningful in in this in, in this setting, right? It's not a small data setting; it's a relatively large data setting, and 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 that makes it ideal for the applications of these of these modern systems. And given the size of the data set, and the, and uh, how do you Given the extreme, you know, size of the data set and the how many degrees, uh, multi-dimensional data set that you are working with, what kind of challenges did you face in building systems with very low latency while operating such uh, large scale machine learning models? Because that's also one of the bigger challenges today to, to be able to operate those models in real time fashion. Yeah. So no, absolutely. Right. And, and, um, you know, the work that we did, um, at Stanford prior to founding the, the company was actually a, a, work, well, a five-year period. And a lot of time was spent like uh, just operating the system and, and doing these, these large-scale experiments and, and getting them through the development cycle, right? So a lot of time was, was, was spent running these, uh, running these models. And we certainly still have this, this challenge, right? That these big models, as you say, um, have a lot of latency and that, that makes it hard to, run a quick experiment uh, with, with some new ideas, right? There's this long cycle around and that, that certainly slows down development time and makes it challenging in, in a commercial setting to integrate new elements into the model on, on a short-term basis, right? That is a challenging thing because these markets that we operate in are very dynamic, right? So there's regulatory agencies, there's other policy you know, interventions that, that take place on an ongoing basis. And some of them require, you know, a retraining of the models. And this can't be done on a daily basis. Um, it's just too challenging uh, computationally. And so we have to be very mindful about how we release new models, on what basis that happens. Um, then we have to, you know, make sure that we integrate the, you know, the salient new policy the actions uh, that are out there and so on and so forth, right? And then, you know, make that available to uh, to our clients. So there is, it is certainly a lot more challenging to work with these large-scale models than it is with the traditional ones, which can be, you know, evaluated and refitted in, in like a, a split second. So that's certainly a disadvantage of working with these big systems. So there's no free lunch here, right? We get more insight but there clearly is an expense there in terms of computational effort. And uh, is it fair to also assume that uh, you probably also had to solve a lot of challenges around uh, what is commonly referred to as MLOps today, which is kind of like monitoring the model because the one model that is doing very well until yesterday might not do very well today because of uh, some changing circumstances or Maybe you push out a new model and it didn't perform as well as you thought it would and may have to roll it back to an older iteration and things like that. Yeah, no, this is um, uh, absolutely one of the core challenging areas. And we've uh, taken a lot of time at the company to build a high uh, performing MLOps process around uh, the, the, the model, right? And once clients are using the projections of the model and, and analytics that are based on those projections, um, you can't just simply roll back a model, right? So we have to 
be really, really careful in what we roll out and have a really rigorous process behind releases of new models, do this on a predictable time schedule so that people, users know, okay, a new model is coming at that date. Here's what, what has changed since the last release. Here's how this new one performs versus the old one. What are the, you know, where are the key, uh, where are the key gaps and why are they there? Right. So users need to understand that they need to develop comfort around uh, a new release before we can actually release it and, and make it available. Right. If, if trading and risk management decisions are based on the output of these models, right, we can't fool around. We have to make sure that there's a very high standard. Uh, before we release any new model. Mm-hmm. Fascinating topic. And I think that obviously what we're, we're trying to, to underline here is that you're, invest, you're very invested in the efforts that you're motioning at um, the organisation in FEMA. What do you hope in that sense that your own efforts bring? Do you want to, like, how do you want it to benefit the industry and maybe greater society? Touched upon it in the conversation, but yeah, maybe you yeah. can. So, so, so one one thing came up, right? So, the the high level idea is if we uh, offer, if you give people better tools to um, understand risk and opportunity, right? Risk and opportunity, it's just it's the same thing. It's two different sides of the metal, right? If they can make better decisions, investment decisions, you know, loan approval decisions, right? Then there's a whole set of societal benefits that that you know derives from that and we talked about some of them earlier right making credit more widely accessible and, and even if you don't use the technology to uh, facilitate credit approval decisions right the argument is with with the, the home loan market and the securities that are based on it if the 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 end investors can make better investment decisions, it will ultimately benefit the borrower because the borrowing rates, the interest rates that the borrowers pay on their home mortgage will adjust down, right? There will will be um, a a tangible benefit uh, for people at the end of the day if those who make those investment decisions and effectively provide the, the funding for those loans do have a better appreciation of where the opportunity is and where the risk is, right? So that's one thing. And then speaking about the uh, you know systemic financial uh, events, right? Society as a whole will benefit if the risk that's in the system to begin with is better understood, right? There will always be risk, but it's about understanding where it is and how it can be mitigated. That is affecting in a positive way society because it will lower the, the likelihood of, of future financial crises, right? So there are societal benefits from the technology here, tangible ones, not just affecting a select few people, but like benefiting the society as a whole and, and just making home ownership more affordable and making the financial system as a whole more, you know, less risky. Uh, at the end of the day. Definitely. I mean, anything that, you know, is going to be able to identify how risk can be mitigated is is certainly something that can enhance um, society on multiple levels. Yeah. And also the loan is also an interesting angle because uh, I come from India and in the last three to five years, there have been a a few disruptive fintech startups who have all managed to kind of uh, 
get uh, penetration into markets where the traditional banking services could not crack. And one of the things uh, that was offered was uh, a smoother loan approval process for small vendors and small businesses, enabling them to be able to uh, take that loan and reinvest into their business. Um, so uh, <laughs> I can personally speak to some of the benefits that uh, uh, I've seen with that happening. Yeah. No, and, and that drives my my involvement in the area, right? This 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 long term goal of uh, of having a positive impact. It's uh it's really it's long term, right? This is not something that uh, uh, gets realized in a matter of uh, of a few months or even a few years, right? So that that this is really a decades, a multiple decades type of uh, of effort, and it's not just myself, but there's there's other people who are really interested in these types of problems as well, and it's a collective effort at the end of the day. Right. And so uh, that drives my my involvement in the area. <laughs> Excellent. Good to hear. Thanks very much, Kai. It's been uh, wonderful having you here. Um, I've certainly learned a, lo- learned a lot. <laughs> I'm sure that it's enriched your mind as well, Sarab. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that our listeners are really going to enjoy um, this episode. Thank well, you. Thank you very much for, for having me on the show. It was a pleasure speaking and enjoyed the, um, the, the Q&A here. <laughs> wonderful so I'd like to thank everyone else for listening today if you want to find out more about AI machine learning or search then go to the Squirrel Academy at learn.squirrel.com thank you thank you very much <laughs>